Well, question for you this morning. How much do we definitively know about the coronavirus? Definitively would be the key words. Do we definitively know its origin? I know you have opinions about that. I have opinions about that. I see your opinions. You see mine on Facebook. Do we definitively know how it spreads? Even last week, we saw the CDC come out and say, you know all that millions of dollars and you spent on Lysol and different disinfectants to cover space. We don't really think it primarily spreads that way. Do we definitively know if we've had it or not? Do we definitively know what the best current practice is minus a vaccine? Do we know when or if a vaccine will come? Do we have definitive answers about the beer virus? That was supposed to be funny. Sorry. By the way, we don't have definitive answers for other viruses that have been around for quite a while. We don't have some of the same definitive answers about things like Ebola, swine flu, MERS, and SARS. We don't have definitive answers about those things. So as advanced as we certainly are as a civilization, as a world, we are still very frail. But it does not sell newspapers, it does not get clicks on social media to come out and say, we don't have all the answers, does it? It doesn't sell to people to say, we don't know everything there is to know yet. Tim Challies is a Christian blogger, and last week um, he posted a blog post that was really a call toward humility in all of this. And the title of his blog last week was, So Very Weak, But So Very Proud. So very weak, but so very proud. It was a call for us to have humility in the middle of this thing. Pride. Theologians tell us that pride is the root of all sin. We've seen pride from before the creation. We saw it in Satan when he fell. What did he say? I will ascend to the heavens. I will ascend to the mountain of God. I will make my name great. My way. My name my glory. That's what pride is. And when we talk about pride, I don't mean pride in your favorite ball team that you're not watching right now. I mean the sin of pride that can so easily swell up in our lives. We've seen it not only in Satan's fall, we've seen it in the Garden of Eden. We saw Adam and Eve say, God, you've given all, all of us these rich blessings, but we think there's a better good out there. We're going to choose our own way. We saw it in Adam and Eve, and we saw the result of that. We saw it with Cain. God give, gives Cain a mark, and he says, don't fall into sin with your brother, and he falls into sin, and then he says, I'm going to make you a wanderer. What does Cain do? No, you're not. I'm going to settle, and I'm going to build a city. I'm going to do it my way for my name, for my glory. This is what we see from early on in Scripture let me ask you a question. Has pride ever shown up in your life? Or are you willing to even answer the question because of pride? See, pride is a thing for us. Do you ever need the spotlight? Do you ever use God's good gifts for your own purposes and for your own glory? If so, how's that working for you? Have you written any books on humility and how you've achieved it? That was my second attempt. I'm going to give up this morning. See, sometimes pride is out there in the open. You know, when you have little athletes um, that are coming up and they're working on their craft, then they tell you how great they are. I know nobody was like that when they were a kid. 
But you can see pride out in the open. There's a text that we're going to be in this morning where you're going to see pride out in the open. You see pride out in the open in people's lives who aren't so self-aware. But the thing about pride is it's very subtle as well, especially for us adults. Especially for us adults who have learned how to hide it. Especially for Christian adults who know that there's supposed to be this humility about us, confidence, but humility about us, it hides in all kinds of places that are unseen. Where does pride show up in your life? So we come to Genesis chapter 11 today, and the people living in that day said, we will do it our way for our name, for our glory. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. 11 will be in verses 1 through 9. This is the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel really isn't even about the tower itself. It's about the pride that shows up and swells up in the people of that day. Let me read it. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Open your Bible there. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they took brick from stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. There's your title lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Verse 7, Come, let us go down and and confuse their language, so that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth, and they left off off building the city, verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel, confusion, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole earth. Earth. You know what I love about Genesis? Genesis gives us the answers to life's big questions. I just want you to consider chapters 1 through 11. Where am I from? Who made me? Is there any dignity and worth that I, and significance that I have from my creator? What is, how do I relate one to another, male to female, marriage? Why is the world so broken? Is there any hope for a broken world? Just think as I'm walking through this. Is there any hope for a broken world? Where does civilization come from? Where do the arts and culture come from? Where do the nations come from? Chapter 11 gives us answers about nations, races, self-made religion of the world. Not only that, is God a loving God? Is he just? Will he punish wrongdoing? Those are big questions of life that Genesis gives us the answers to, a biblical perspective on. And so when we come to chapter 11, we see where languages and cultures and people come from. You know, early on after becoming a believer in Christ, it it was settled in my mind that the Bible was inerrant, that it was without error, that it was instructive for my life. And so when I come to a text now like this, and it says that the, that the earth had one language, and the way in which nations and races and languages came about was because of judgment here, I believe it. 
But for some of us or some people who don't yet believe or some people that just have more questions about things, there's a lot of questions that come out of this. See, naturalism says, no, this came about, language came about, culture came about over long periods of time in a different way. I haven't spent a lot of time doing this, but I'm going to stop here this morning and say this. What are the external evidences to suggest that a tower was real, that a flood was real, that a creation was real? See, in the ancient cultures, you have stories, you have storylines about creation and flood and tower, and they all are a little bit different, but they all point to a truth that these things actually happen. So if you need external evidence to go, is this really the way this happened? You can go and read from Babylonian culture and Egyptian culture and the culture, the ancient cultures of those days, different accounts of a worldwide flood, different accounts of languages being created out of the Tower of Babel. So maybe that helps you this morning. But I want you to remember, looking at the text, where we've been. So remember God has judged the earth and wiped it clean and then Noah comes out of the ark in chapter 9 verses one And following, what does he say? Again, the creation ordinance of doing what? Multiply and fill the earth. Disperse. You ever wondered why he does that? Think about that in the beginning. Multiply and fill the earth. It's about children, but it's also about God's name being made great throughout the earth. This is what we see in the end of time, isn't it? This is what God desires because he is God. He is not selfish. He is God, and he ought to be worshiped. And so he asked them to disperse, to procreate, to fill the earth with the glory of God. That's the purpose. But look at the chronology. We talked about this last week. If you're looking at chapter 10 and chapter 11, what you might, might notice is in chapter 10, you see language and you see nations. And so what we said last week is the Tower of Babel actually is the cause of the effect of the nations. And so it's reversed in order. As a matter of fact, if you get into chapter 10, it likely happens, the Tower of Babel likely happens about two generations in because that's where you see Nimrod, the mighty hunter, the rebel. And that's where you see Peleg that we talked about in verse 25 of chapter 10. And we said, in those days, the earth was divided. And so chapter 11, one through nine really fits into chapter 10 about two generations early on in the multiplying and filling of the earth. But look at the text, verse 1 through 4. You could call it the humanistic manifesto. This is the people of the world saying, my way, my name, my glory. And then you see God's response. Let let me just walk through a few things and then we'll get into some particulars. It says the whole earth had one language and the same word, so unity. The people migrated to the east. Anytime you see eastward movement, just make a note. When you see eastern movement, it usually means that they're going away from the blessing of God. Normal or going into trouble. They found a plain in the land of Shinar. Remember seeing Shinar last week? Who settled in the plains of Shinar? Nimrod settled there, the mighty hunter who was rebelling against God. So this is where the people, a couple of generations in, are migrating to. This is where they come to as they disperse. And instead of continuing to move, what do they do? They stop. And they settled there. Underline the word settled there. What did God call them to do? Multiply and fill the earth. See also Cain settled. This is disobedience. 
verse 3, and they said to one another, this is like the original group think, where you just say what you want to do to one another, and as if it's the right thing to do, and then you do it. I want you to consider something here. If you look at the math, a couple, I've talked to a couple of you about this, Noah and his sons are still alive. And this people say to one another, come let us do what we want. What should they have done? They should have gone and sought counsel from Noah and Ham, Shem, and Japheth because they had been through the first judgment. They had seen the effects of the flood. They had walked through it. They don't receive counsel. They don't look for counsel here. They go and do what they want. Verse 3, come let us. Where have you seen those words before in Scripture? Come let us make. In Genesis chapter 1, what does God do? He says, come let us, the Trinity of God, Make man in our image and let's bless them. This is man saying, in the land of Shinar, which is the region of the Garden of Eden, we're going to start over. We're going to create a new beginning and we're going to make our name great. Come let us make a tower and a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. This is the original humanistic manifesto. This is man saying, no thanks God, we'll do it our way. That's verse 1 through 4. They don't scatter. This is a huge diss of God. I wondered when I was a kid, that sounds like a really heavy judgment. They just came together and made a city. But this is an affront to a holy, sovereign God. That's what's happening. And then verse 5 through 9, you'll see it. You see God's response. He confuses their language, which sets them on a path to have to migrate outward further in those clans with their language. And so this is the judgment that you see in 5 through 9. God confuses their language. I want to draw out two really important lessons that I think have great application to your life and to my life this morning. The first one is this. God's good gifts can be easily abused. God's good gifts can be easily abused. I think I see six good gifts here. I think you see unity. I think you see one one language It's a gift. You see creativity. You see technology. You see God's revelation. And you see significance. So unity, language, creativity. If you're taking notes and you'll write these down. Technology, revelation, and significance. Let me briefly go through those. See in chapter 10, 9 and 10, you see unity. You see family unity. There's one family on the earth. And everyone comes from there. This is an essential unity that they have, that they could do great things together. And yet it goes the opposite way as well, doesn't it? See, in unity, rogue nations can do really rough things. In unity against God, communities and churches and families and people can go their own way. So unity works both ways here. They use the good gift of unity for their own purposes. They also use language. See it there in verse 1? The whole earth, one language, same words. Listen, language is a great gift. Language, think about it. You have thoughts in your head, how do you communicate it to someone else? You use symbols. That's what effectively words are. They are symbols meant to be received by someone else so that they understand what you are saying and can respond and can then communicate symbols back to you so you can communicate. With one language, that's hard enough, right? Moms and dads, right? Spouses, 
With one language, that's hard enough. We have all kinds of communication problems. I'm doing premarital right, my wife and I are doing premarital right now with two couples, two different couples, Zoom. That's a whole new deal, man. That's a whole new deal. And every premarital syllabus that you can find talks about communication, the key of communication. This is a beautiful gift that God gives them, that God gives us, and yet look at the way they use it. They use it to come together in unity for their own purposes. They use that language in that way. They also have creativity. Look at verse 3 there. And they said to one another, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Effectively, this is like making asphalt. So they take different bricks. And by the way, in that day, for especially those of you guys who are builders, this is like second-rate building material. But they think they're pretty great. This is second-rate building material. They take bricks. There's no stone in the, in the land of Shinar like there was where they were. So stone in that day is the best building supply that you could have. And yet they use bricks and mortar and bitmen and put it together and they build this tower. You see, they're creative with what they have. This is a new concept in the scripture. There's no stone there. But listen, God has given them creativity. He's made them in his image. He's a creator God. He's made them creative. I want you to think about all the creativity that this world has to offer and the ways in which we can both use it for God's glory and for harm and for evil. And with that, you see technology. What do they do with their creativity? They build a city. They build a city out of tar and bricks. They're making their own heaven on earth. The idea of Babel, the word Babel means confusion. But you can also substitute the word Babylon. You know what the Babylonians thought about their name? They thought that they were the gateway to heaven, the gateway of the gods. That's what they thought their name meant. In the Bible, when Babylon is mentioned, how is it mentioned? In Revelation chapter 18, what you see is Babylon is viewed as a symbol of world of world power, the symbol of the world and all the world um, system set against God is used in the word Babylon. That's how the scriptures unpack and use the idea of Babylon. I've given you some notes there at the bottom of your worship guide if you want to check that out. So this is what you see. They use this technology for harm in verse 4. They use it to build themselves a name. Listen, we use technology in all kinds of great ways. We're live streaming this service. I mean, 20 years ago, to think that we could do something like that is, is nuts. We can use technology to advance the gospel in all kinds of ways, but technology can be used in all kinds of evil and awful ways as well. We know this. They abuse technology. They abuse creativity, language, and unity. Here's what else I think you see with that technology and that creativity. They're building a tower to reach the heavens, See, in Moses' day, the original readers would look at this and remember Egypt. They would remember the ziggurats, the sign of the zodiac, where people would worship the stars. They would worship the heavens. And so not only do you see language and clans and races, now you see self-made religion coming out of technology and creativity. You see self-made religion that says, we're going to co-opt with God. God receives glory, but so do we. Let us make for ourselves a name. This is the origin of self-made religion. You know what Christianity says? No. You don't participate in that. God receives glory. We humble ourselves before Christ, the one who has given his life for us. 
that we don't contribute our glory to him. So you see self-made religion. You also see revelation. What has God told them? He's told them to be fruitful and multiply. He's given them his love and his care. He's given them his protection after the, after the flood. And what do they do? They take his word and they twist it. And look at the text. Come let us. They use the words of God and twist them. You ever seen that? You ever seen people do that and go, well, the Bible says this, so I'm going to do this. We never do that. Twisting the Bible, twisting God's revelation to us. We're going to make it our way. And also significance. See, I think the Bible innately says that you and I are significant because we're made in the image of God. We're made for his glory. You have significance. God loves you and cares for you. We have significance, but they take that significance and they push it to independent autonomy. They're only significant unless, they're only significance in the fact that it's their way, their glory, their name. Do you see it? We're going to do this for our name, for our glory. We confuse significance with independent autonomy all the time. We want our name, our spotlight. So if I had to sum this up, see, they use the good gifts that God gave them not to make his name great, but to make their own name great. See, Nimrod, he's in view here. The mighty hunter that settled in the land of Shinar, he's in view. And all the other Nimrods with him would not be singing, Come thou fount of every blessing. Attune my heart to sing your praise. They were singing their own song. 1989, give you a break. 1989, NFL draft, two men with the same last name, incredibly gifted athletes, both from humble beginnings, both would become Hall of Famers. Barry Sanders, primetime Neon Dion Sanders. Two athletes, listen to me kids, listen to me boys, Two athletes, incredibly gifted, incredibly different perspectives on how they lived and how they played the game. Barry Sanders, that guy had thighs twice as big as my legs. Short guy from Oklahoma State, set all kinds of NCAA records as a running back. Comes to the NFL, one other athlete, one other running back, Marcus Allen, said he was like Picasso on the field. Probably not a more talented athlete to play that position all time. I think he's the greatest running back of all time, by the way. My opinion. You know what he did as a great back, as a Hall of Fame back? With a terrible offensive line and a terrible franchise that he played for forever. He had nobody blocking for him. But you know what he did when he reached the end zone, young men? When he reached the end zone, he tossed the ball or handed the ball to the referee. And off the field, he always praised his offensive line and his coaches and his team. They didn't block for him. <laughs> All right? He was incredible, but he was humble. And now let's talk about primetime. Some of this is a little old for some of you. I'm looking around going, man, 1989. Some of you aren't born yet. Primetime, Neon Deion Sanders. He was all about himself. All about himself. My son's over there doing the Dion little shake. 
when he hit the end zone, he was 10 yards from hitting the end zone, and he was fast enough to do this. Incredible athlete. He played cornerback. He was a shutdown corner. He played, he did punt returns. He played offense. He played wide receiver. He was incredible, an incredible athlete. But when he got to the end zone, man, that guy had his hand up. He was doing the little twists with his legs. He was celebrating before he got to the end zone almost every time. And then he had his little dance that he would always do. He was the center of media attention every week. He was prime time. But let me ask you a question. Who got all the attention? Primetime got all the attention. But who has the respect? Barry Sanders. Give you that example, not to just give you an a, a, a old school history lesson in football. Which way are you going to live? You need to be primetime? Do you live your life in a way that says, I'm going to hand the ball to the ref? I'm going to act like I've been there before. You're going to live in humility. Are we going to live for the show? Are we going to live to make our name great? How would God have us live? What do we do with the good gifts that God gives us? You remember the story of Jesus when he, the sons of Zebedee's, Zebedee's mother comes to Jesus? Every mother wants the best for their kids, right? They come to Jesus and said, you know, I really want my sons to sit on your right and your left. That's a good mother. And Jesus said, that's not mine to give. He said, you know, the Gentiles lord over power. And then he said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, be a what? Be a servant. This is what it means to be great in God's kingdom. It means to be a servant. That's what he modeled. That's how he went to the cross. That's the message of the gospel. He humbled himself that you might have life and life eternal. You see, God's way doesn't look like the world. And you may not get the accolades that you want or even deserve. So do you want to be great in his kingdom or your own little kingdom? So, what do we do with the good gifts that God gives us? Well, what's God's response to the people at the Tower of Babel? Look at verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 through 9, I think you see three things, three ways in which God responds. And let me give you those. He responds in sovereign sarcasm. He responds with merciful concern. He responds with holy judgment. Let's talk about sovereign sarcasm. I want you to see the sarcasm in verse 5. They think in verse 1 through 4 they're pretty great. They've built all this to the heavens. I don't think they were literally trying to build it to the heavens, but they were certainly full of themselves, full of their own name and their own way and their own glory. And look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Here's the sarcasm. This is where in the Bible you see anthropomorphism. It's where God uses human language to describe how he's thinking and feeling. God says, let us come down and see. The implication, the sarcastic implication is, I can't see them because they're so far below me. You know, it's always a bad thing when God gets sarcastic. God gets sarcastic like this sovereignly with Job, doesn't he? When Job is complaining, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When Habakkuk doesn't understand God's ways and he sits on his rampart 
as if to say, give a rebuttal to me, God, and he does the same thing. See, God is sovereignly sarcastic and saying, they think they've made their name great. They think they've reached the heavens. I can't even see them. I've got, we've got to go down. The Trinity of God has got to go down and see this thing. That this is so far below me. This is what you see in verse 5. You see sovereign sarcasm rooted in his sovereign power. And then you see real concern. Don't mistake when you look at verse 6. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they do. This is not fear. God is not fearful of, of all that they can do. He's sovereign. He's concerned. He's concerned. He is showing mercy and care here and saying, look at all that they can do together. He's seen this before. Look at all that they can do together. I am fearful for them. He is being a good shepherd. He is loving and caring for them. And so this is the reason for his judgment. He judges them in his holiness and in his justness, which is also an act of mercy. Because what does he say? Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. He did that so it would slow down the effects of their sin and pride of wanting to be great. This is sarcasm, concern, and judgment. This is what you see. You know, we have to pay a price when we go our own way. We have to pay a price when we go our own way. But guess what? This is what has happened at the cross. That God has paid the price for you and for me, the judgment he put on his son. He put the judgment on his son so you can receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. You can't earn it. God is a merciful and just God. Do you know that message this morning? That God, through his son, has died in your place that you might have life his way. Verse 9, look at it there. Therefore, its name was Babel. Means confusion, right? But as I said a minute ago, Babylon can also be imposed into this. So what's your perspective? Is the world around you and all that it offers to make your name great, is it the gateway to heaven for you? Is this heaven on earth for you? Is this Babylon? Or do you look at the world the way God would have you look at the world and say, this world is confused. This world needs redeeming. This world is not worth you putting all your eggs in this world's basket because it will leave you defeated. That's the question that comes out of verse 9. There's two perspectives. There's two ways to live. Are you living for Babylon? Are you living for heaven? Are you living the way God desires you to live because there's blessing there? Which way do you choose? See, the warning of this passage, and we'll close with this, the warning of this passage for the people of Israel about to go into the promised land that were looking back on Egypt and forward to the land of Canaan where God had called them to go, the message to them was this. Self-glory is self-defeating. Pursuing your own vain glory is self-defeating. It doesn't work. That's the message for you and me as well from this text. That self-pursuing self-glory is completely self-defeating. They tried to build their own tower in their own way to the heavens. They still got scattered. But here's a beautiful truth. The pursuit of his glory 
leads to blessing. I want you to turn one page in Genesis 12, and I think the people of God then wouldn't have missed this. Maybe it's easy for us to miss this, but I think it's also the reason he puts this out of chronological order here. Genesis chapter 12. What, what are they doing here in 11? My name. I want to make my name great. I'm going to make my name great. Look at what happens in the Abrahamic covenant, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. What does God say to Abram? He says, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, speaking of Christ. Do you catch that? You catch the contrast from chapter 11 to chapter 12? His way, if you live his way in the pursuit of his glory, there will be blessing, and primarily that is through Christ and salvation. But I would also remind you of something else. When you come to the New Testament, you see this guy named John the Baptist. And I've talked about him a little bit around Christmas. People ask G- John, are you the Christ? All the time. And he answered, in what way? No, I am not the Christ. There's a lot of I am nots in John's life. I am not the Christ. I am not worthy to tie his sandals. He must increase. I must decrease. And then you remember in John chapter 3, later on when Jesus has now come on the scene, and John's time has kind of passed, John's disciples do what? They come to him and they say, hey, Jesus is getting all the fame. Everybody, your disciples are starting to follow him. What does John say to his own disciples about Jesus, or about his own role, he tells them a story, effectively. He says, you know what? This is great. I get to be a friend of the bridegroom who's coming for his bride. Effectively, I get to be in the wedding. And if you're at a wedding, you don't make your name great. You're trying to stand up and see the bride and the bridegroom and celebrate what's happening So John is saying to them, we get to get out of the way. He must increase. We must decrease. And then he says, now my joy is complete. Not only does God, when you pursue his glory and his name and his way in humility, there is salvation and there is joy. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for this message, this warning from this passage that self-glory is certainly self-defeating. And Lord, I pray for us where we're at. Pray for my own heart. I pray as David prayed that you would reveal any way in me that I can't see. And so Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be a people marked by humility, marked by a desire to bring your name glory, to make much of your name here and in this community and in our world, that we would daily ask the question, am I making a name for myself or am I making a name for my God? We love you. We thank you for this. We pray that the Spirit of God would use this word in our lives in a way that would bring us and draw us closer to our Savior, that we would just a little bit more today be conformed to the image of Christ. 
In his name we pray, amen.